0: The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre. Part 4, The 1900s. Conclusions. Psychology Today and Tomorrow. So where are we today in psychology as we close the first decade of the new millennium? Well, here's how things seem to be shaping up. Freudianism is slowly disappearing. Its insights have been absorbed into a general clinical psychology that is dominated by humanistic practices based more on Carl Rogers and Albert Ellis than on Sigmund Freud. The object relations school attempts to hang on to Freud, but is really little more than a belated recognition of humanist ideas reconstructed into psychoanalytic language. Jungian psychology, too, is disappearing. Jung still lives on in the study of mythology and symbolism in the works of people like Joseph Campbell and in the amazing popularity of the Myers-Briggs categories. Jungian psychology or analytic psychology tends to be more of a niche with a small group of very devoted followers. Now, Alfred Adler, on the other hand, has been rediscovered. And his insights are thoroughly integrated into humanistic and existential psychology. And the same can be said for the neo-Adlerian theorists such as Karen Horney and Eric Fromm. Sensation and perception, the concerns of most of the originators of psychology as a science, draw less and less attention over the years. Gestalt psychology has, for the most part, been absorbed into the mainstream and lost its status as a separate approach. It has two offspring, humanistic clinical psychology and the field of social psychology. And these are, of course, alive and well. Humanistic psychology forms the bedrock of modern clinical practice, especially in the form of an eclectic blend of Rogers and Ellis, despite their outward incompatibility, plus a few behavioristic techniques, such as systematic desensitization. In general, this is referred to as a form of cognitive behaviorism. Social psychology has become a blend of humanistic concerns and inventive experimental research. Unfortunately, social psychology has rejected its phenomenological roots and there's little in the way of coherent theorizing or long-term commitment to research programs. Much of social psychology is a matter of testing disconnected intuitive hypotheses. Other disciplines, such as personality and developmental psychology, follow pretty much the same pattern as social psychology. Not only is there little in the way of theorizing about personality, but the trend is toward quantitative research, almost all of it devoted to individual differences. The most popular paradigm in developmental and personality psychology is creating a test using factor analysis. This despite the fact that factor analysis is a fairly suspect methodology that may well relate more to word meanings than to any true underlying constructs with real psychological reference. Now, this I blame on the prevalence of perhaps the overuse of statistical software. I love statistical software. I teach statistics using statistical software, but the fact remains you could take any garbage data set use a factor analysis with a principal components methodology, and come up with something that explains 100% of the variance in your model, looks like it has factors, and it's still complete garbage. Statistical software is a wonderful tool, and I'm glad that we have it. But it doesn't replace our human brains when it comes to understanding and finding what is truly underlying the things that we claim to be measuring. Developmental psychology has become increasingly applied, especially, of course, in relationship to education and parenting. One advance is the movement toward consideration of the entire lifespan, considering the development of the human being from conception through birth, childhood, all the way to old age and death. Now this change has close ties to applied areas, and this time the social problem of an increasingly elderly population. As the baby boomers continue to age, this geriatric psychology is becoming more and more important. Phenomenology, as a method, has become part of a more general movement usually referred to as qualitative methodology. Qualitative research and methods have become very popular in certain fields, especially fields like education and nursing, and also popular in certain orientations, such as feminism and multiculturalism. Now personally, even though I tend toward the quantitative side, I am a fan of qualitative research. When it is properly done, it can reveal information that we can't get to in other ways, Unfortunately, however, I see a lot of qualitative methods being poorly used. Qualitative methods are by nature far more susceptible to bias and many times become a mechanism for a researcher simply to find support for the outcome that he or she already wanted. In other words, it simply becomes a way of confirming one's bias or codifying one's preconceptions. And therefore, much qualitative research can be taken only as exploratory at best. The better approach for using qualitative research is to identify one's biases at the outset so that you know what you expect to find, and then see whether your data confirm or deny those explicit biases. When you use that approach, you are much less likely to read into the data what you expect to find and allow the data to speak and your subjects to tell the story that truly explains their lived experience. Existentialism has fused with humanism, sometimes contributing its philosophical depth, sometimes merely adding its confusing jargon. Many existentialists and humanists have drifted into the realm of transpersonal psychology, which investigates issues such as altered states of consciousness and spiritual experiences. Although there is legitimate and valuable research to be done here, most of it is really a form of New Age mysticism in the guise of psychological science. Behaviorism much like Gestalt psychology, has been absorbed into mainstream psychology. While students continue to memorize Pavlovian and Skinnerian conditioning paradigms, it is increasingly understood that these are not particularly useful for understanding human behavior. It is really the work of Tolman and Bandura that appears to be having the longest-term impact. Hardcore behaviorists, those who deny the existence or the necessity of the mind, are moving into the study of physiological processes. Perhaps the most disappointing area of psychology has been cognitive psychology. While cognitive psychology began promisingly with the works of psychologists like Ulrich Nesser, and then the input from the artificial intelligence movement, It seems that both Nesser and AI researchers have abandoned the program. Nesser felt that cognitive psychology was ignoring reality and it's becoming sort of an intellectual game. AI researchers found that it simply wasn't necessary to model human cognitive processes in order to outdo human performance. When IBM's Deep Blue computer, beat chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov, humanity's secure place at the top of creation, our dominion over nature, seems to have ended. Now, one offshoot of cognitive psychology is a new interest in such traditional philosophical issues as the nature of consciousness. Often considered the ultimate psychological question, It has generated a great deal of excitement at conferences. The most active part of psychology today is physiological psychology. First, the remarkable progress in mapping even the living working brain with CT scans, PET scans, and MRIs will soon result in a fairly complete picture of brain circuitry. Second, the discovery of effective new drugs operating at the synapse level has revolutionized clinical psychology. And third, the completion of the mapping of the human genome heralds the beginning of a far more thorough understanding of the links between genetics and behavior. On the other hand, Physiological psychologists are identifying themselves more and more with their biological and medical colleagues and distancing themselves from the softer side of psychology. Related to the developments in physiological psychology is the impact of sociobiology on psychological theory. Often called evolutionary psychology, this approach has produced a significant number of intriguing hypotheses about the origins of human behavior and the existence of possible instincts that delimit, if not define, our natures. Evolutionary psychology is continuing to grow and is offering better and more testable hypotheses as its research extends. Evolutionary psychology, or EP, holds that the behaviors or traits that we find occurring universally in all cultures are the best candidates for evolutionary adaptations, including the ability to infer emotions in other people, to discern kin from non-kin, to identify and prefer healthier mates, and to cooperate with others. Recent years have brought a variety of tests of the theoretical predictions of evolutionary psychology on topics like marriage patterns, promiscuity, intelligence, infanticide, the perception of beauty, the adaptive utility of homosexuality, and parental investment. And, as you would certainly expect, there are still plenty of controversies, questions, and criticisms about environmental psychology— Involving its testability or the interpretation of the research results. So I expect to see more and more from evolutionary psychology in the coming years. So as it stands right now, psychology is fragmented. There's a particularly large divide between humanistic applied psychology and highly reductionistic biological psychology. What is needed Is a unifying theory, one that avoids the easy extremes. This theory has to be informed by postmodern criticism, but must ultimately base itself on a broad empiricism and rigorous rationalism. It has been done before. William James did it in the 1890s. So did Gardner Murphy in the 1950s. Apparently, The field of psychology was not ready to recognize the full implications of their efforts and the efforts of others like them. Maybe we will be ready next time. And this brings me to one final observation about the field of psychology today. There has been, in recent years what I regard as a sad and misguided movement to remove the teaching of the history of psychology from university psychology programs. In many cases, at far too many universities, a psychology major today can graduate without ever having been exposed to the variety of ideas and systems that shaped the field of psychology. I know that some students consider the study of history of any kind, even the history of psychology, to be boring. In fact, the author of the first and most famous history of psychology, his last name was Boring. And I know that there are differences in the quality of the instruction of the history of psychology based upon the knowledge and the enthusiasm of the instructor. However, I believe that the history of psychology is fascinating, and that its study ties us to our philosophical and scientific roots. If you are a student in the field of psychology, I encourage you to take an elective course in the history of psychology, if possible. And if there is not the possibility for you to take such a course, well, that's why I created this podcast. I think that it is very important that we in the field of psychology, and in fields outside of psychology, know whence we came so that we may better understand where we are going. Courses in the history of psychology, even if they are boring, have an important place in our educations. And I think that properly taught, the study of psychology can be fascinating. Because by looking at things from the big historical perspective, from the aspect of eternity that we get from studying philosophy, perhaps we will have the progress that we need in psychology sooner rather than later. For Dr. C. George Boré, this is Professor Todd. Thank you for listening to this series of podcasts about the fascinating story of psychology. The History of Psychology podcast is based upon and adapted from the work of Dr. C. George Bore, formerly of Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania, and his e-book, History of Psychology, copyright 2006, C. George Bore. The podcasts were written and produced by Todd Daniel, director of the RStats Institute at Missouri State University. Podcasts are hosted by Missouri State University, iTunes U., Brad Mitchell manages the Missouri State University iTunes U site. Additional information came from my class notes, a variety of history of psychology textbooks. I use the book The History of Modern Psychology by Schultz and Schultz in my courses. Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. I know, I know, but you know, everybody does it. And help with pronunciation came from dictionary.com. Corey Manchester provided the smooth announcer voice for the introduction and transitions. The royalty-free bumper music came from DigitalJuice.com. Recording was done using Apple's GarageBand and my favorite Samson co one Studio condenser mic. If you are a fan of psychology, you might also want to check out my other podcast called The Great Ideas in Psychology Podcast, also available on iTunes U. This is Professor Todd. Thanks for listening.